I suspect you all know this proverb that's passed around, seeing is believing. Uh, the original version of this proverb was written by uh, a physician in the 18th century. Thomas Fuller wrote a little book of Proverbs, but the actual proverb he wrote was, seeing is believing, but feeling is the truth. Um, they're peculiar proverbs, um, not always so good. But he gets at this kind of sense that we have intuitively as human beings that human sight can be deceptive, can be misleading, that our own opinions can often be wrong. It's a theme that runs throughout Scripture, and it's right there at the heart of that anointing of David. Samuel, who of all people knew the Lord closely, couldn't tell who the Lord's anointed was because he couldn't see as God sees. This kind of remarkable sense, if anybody knew it, should have been Samuel. There's a, a, a humility that immediately kind of comes forth in this passage that we tend not to look at the world the way that God does. The Proverbs um, hit this refrain again and again. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Anyone trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Even more powerfully, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in its end, its way is death. We have, in our own sense, the Proverbs is trying to say, an inclination to believe ourselves too quickly, to lean too much on our own understanding. It's the refrain in Proverbs 3, trust not on your own understanding, or lean not on your understanding, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. Something about our fallen state in this world, our sinfulness, or our sense of being finite, limits what we can see. And that theme um, kind of runs throughout all of our passages that we read this morning. And most powerfully in this long gospel passage in John chapter 9, the blind man coming to sight, which for the gospel writers is a, always a thematic way of exhibiting what it means to come to faith in Jesus. There's a division in this community in the synagogue about who Jesus is. And this key word that's used, I don't know, eight or ten times, know. We do not know where he is from. I do not know who he is. I do not know if he's the anointed. One thing I know, I was blind and I see. The whole story turns on this moment that the blind man comes to knowledge by something remarkable that has happened in the awakening of his own sight by the work of the Lord. It is in miniature, I think, John writing to the church later. Best not to imagine John as a reporter on the scene, but as a teacher to a later church, revealing to us what it's like for all of us when we come to faith. Those awakening moments, the clarity of Jesus as the story goes on, it must be that he's come from God if he can make a blind man see. And we feel the strain of those who deny who Jesus is so bent on their own understanding that Jesus tells them they are blind. It's a reminder, a calling for us again to open our eyes and to be awakened to the true reality of Christ. And if we look down into the narrative, there's actually a deeper kind of theological teaching that John's doing in this chapter. He's doing it all throughout his gospel. That early scene is so ripe with creation imagery. It's the Sabbath day, that day when the Lord finished making the heavens and the earth and Jesus said, it is night, it is, it is day, it is time for us to do the works of day before it is night, night and day, to do the works of light 
And he spit on mud, water, and dirt, and made light. All of the days of creation, one way or another, kind of burst out of this passage. And for John's audience, his readers, were meant to have this image that the Creator Himself has taken up human flesh. And walking among the disciples, and most people can't see Him. We should see the images so clearly, this has got to be the Lord. The one who looks at his own fingers with dirt, who marvels that by the Spirit in the womb of Mary, he wears the creation that he made, so that the glory and the power of God might take up residence in our world. John says in John 1, verse 3, through whom God made the world, he now makes known what has not been seen. The Creator Himself is walking on the face of the earth and by His human fleshly touch, He can make the creation brand new again. This is John's message again and again. He goes to a wedding at Cana of Galilee and speaks a word and water becomes wine on the third day. This is Genesis scene of fruit-bearing plants. The Creator has come into the world and so what John is getting at in this passage with the blind man seeing isn't simply a matter of faith, but it's that affirmation that Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator of the world, has taken up flesh in our midst so that this world might be reborn into life. The story then plays out as this message works its way in and people begin to discover the power of this one who must be among them. And when the Pharisees confront the young man again a second time. They say these striking words, we know this man is a sinner. How do they know? Because he's broken the Sabbath. This is where John's message is so powerful. If this is the one who made the world, he can work on the Sabbath. He can make the world new again in a moment of brokenness and darkness and blindness. And if Jesus is a sinner, then everything he claims is wrong. The story turns here at this moment. But if he is who he says he is, and he does the works of God, then the one who speaks to them is the judge and the moral authority of the world. John will tell us later in his own letters, he who loves me keeps my commandments. John's writing to us, he's writing to an early church to say this creator, this one who gives light, has called us into a new way of life out of darkness and out of sin, into obedience and purity. That judgment he gives the Pharisees in the very last line. Since you say you see, you are unclean. If you think you are without sin, you are hopeless. But the one who acknowledges his sin sees the Lord. It is in humility, it's in contrition, it's this long season of Lent to recognize our weakness and our fault For it is there that we see the Lord most clearly. The work that he has done in his life that is within us. That message is what Paul is on about in Ephesians chapter 5. This Christ is the moral authority of the world. And he has shown his light upon us. And as human beings, we are prone to drift back into the narratives and the behavior of the world. To sexual immorality to impurity, to lewd speech, and to covetousness. 
to desire those things of the world rather than God, to behave as the world does in sexual immorality, to speak profanely against my brother and sister and among them. Paul is using this image, this metaphor. We are all prone to drift back into the currents in the wake of the world. And our call is to awaken, to be people of life and those of the day. This really interesting phrase right in the middle of our reading today. Do not be deceived by empty speech. The world will have its own rationale, its own justification for its immoral behavior. Paul says, don't be deceived. This is a politically incorrect and uncomfortable message in our world today. He says that we're to expose the darkness of the world and its impurities. Can't we just tell people Jesus loves them and leave it there? Paul knows the light shines on darkness so that it might be exposed, so that our brothers and sisters might come and know the Lord Christ and his life. And a part of that gospel message is to make clear that we have fallen away, that we've desired our own things, that we've misused the goods of his world, that we've spoken wrongly to our neighbor. Today in this season of Lent, there ought to be a moment that as we look on Christ and we see his light, that we ask him to shine within us, to expose the darkness, the empty words and rationale of our misbehavior, to recommit ourselves to walking in light again. I'll end by going back to this Psalm 23, that most famous psalm that's often on coffee mugs and t-shirts and sermons. And it's quite a remarkable little passage. And I think it's perhaps easy to overlook the way that the psalm has two very different perspectives. If John 9 teaches us about seeing Christ for who he is and Paul teaches us about seeing the light that exposes and reforms our moral life. And Psalm 23 is a psalm that teaches us to see the world differently because of who Christ is. As you go through Psalm 23, we know these placid scenes of grass and quiet waters and a table in the wilderness. But the psalm has this refrain all the way through it of extraordinary danger and darkness. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The verb there, want, has no object. It's the open idea that I will have no need. To have lived in the ancient agrarian world where this psalm was written was to live always in the threat of starvation and blight and hunger and drought. People like we know in our developing world, they live day to day to live without want, without fear of food would have been thoughtless. It would have been unimaginable. My crops could fail tomorrow. There could be no rain next year. I may not get a good crop. I may not grow well. I may get sick. My animals may die. To live without want was the very thing that hung upon their minds day and night. Even though I walk through deep darkness, I will fear no evil. That folk saying the valley of the shadow of death is not what that word means, I'm sorry to say, but I fear we'll never get it out of our English Bibles. The word means dark, dark, gloomy. In darkness we fear evil. It's the place where I can't see what might come upon my life. When there's darkness and no light, we fear the unknown. There's want, there's darkness, there's evil. 
He lays out a table for me in the wilderness in the face of my foes. There's enemies. The whole psalm, in other words, has a whole way of looking at the world that could be sheer pessimism and fear. Enemies, darkness, want, evil. But David doesn't see the world through that lens. He sees it as one of provision and safety and blessing and anointing and feasting. Everything in this psalm hinges on its opening words. Yahweh is my shepherd. If this is true, if the God is who he says he is, if he is the king of the world, then everything changes in my life. That's the extraordinary thing about this psalm. We do have to purge a little bit of that kind of pastoral, soft, sentimental image of Jesus carrying sheep. To be a shepherd in the ancient world is to be a king. Cyrus was a shepherd. Hammurabi was a shepherd. Yahweh led them like a shepherd in the wilderness in the Psalm 78, Psalm 80. Shepherd was a key word for authority and power. David isn't saying this one's just going to help me out and feed me. He's saying this is the world's true and only ruler. And if that's true, then I won't want, and I won't fear, and I won't worry. The confidence that comes in faith, the psalm is teaching us trust. It's teaching us that resolve that the world may look to me full of danger, full of anxiety for what I must do tomorrow, full of risk in the job that I may take. And yet, if God is my king, if he is the one who can open a blind man's eyes, that changes everything. That resetting of our lives should happen for us today. I'll leave us with this final image that's so clever, the way the psalm ends. Surely, goodness and loving kindness or mercy will chase me all the days of my life. That word there... Um, has a very pastoral, will follow me, is not what that means. The word almost always in the Psalms is a word used for the pursuers who hunt you down to kill you. And so David says, in the midst of people who pursued him his whole life, when I look behind me, who's following up? But Yahweh, with goodness and loving kindness, I can't get away from him. What a beautiful image. A shepherd king who has all authority will chase you down and hold you fast. This is good news for us that has to be enlightened for us. May he make us like that blind man. Touch our eyes this day and show us his light again. Amen.